What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and much more. Join us. Arisha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations. We're very happy to be back today with another highly esteemed guest who has a range of expertise and experiences. Our guest today is Dr. Adia Hardy-Ringfield, the Mary Tilson Hemingway Professor of Arts and Sciences and Vice Dean for Faculty Development and Diversity in Arts of Sci and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Her research examines how and why racial and gender inequity persist in professional occupations. She's lectured internationally on her research in this area and her work has been published in many different highly rated peer-reviewed journals, including Social Problems, Gender and Society, and American Sociological Review. She's also been of tremendous service to the field of sociology, serving as the former president of Sociologists for Women in Society and the former president of the so Southern Sociological Society, which is the largest regional professional sociological so association in the United States. In addition to uh, Professor Wingfield's scholarship, she has written for many different mainstream outlets, which we'll talk about a little bit later. She also, um, her recent book, Flatlining, Race, Work, and Healthcare in the New Economy, won the 2019 C. Wright Mills Award. Also add that Dr. Wingfield is a proud Spelmanite and all-around dope person. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Wingfield. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So it's good to see you um, across the, the pandemic and without a mask and all that. So looking forward to, to seeing you perhaps in person one day soon. Um, and congratulations on the recent C. Wright Mills Award. That's, that's a really huge accomplishment. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so on previous episodes of our podcast, we've talked about how many researchers simply assume that once people kind of make it, especially um, Black Americans and other people of color, once they reach a certain socioeconomic status level, they have a certain amount of education and income, they don't have to worry anymore about coming into contact with poor health. So their, their, their life should be protected. However, the, the quantif quantitative data um, that both Mike and, and, and myself look a little bit about, um, we see that's not true in the quantitative data. And I think it's really unique that your qualitative work provides some insights as to why we see the, the differences and the unexpected results that we see in quantitative findings. So we're wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the unique stressors such as tokenism and marginalization that upperly mobile Black professionals face. Sure, absolutely. So what we know from existing research, my own and that of colleagues, is that exactly what you said, when Black workers get to a point of reaching a certain socioeconomic level or class position, the assumption might be, you know, you've gotten to this point, you're good, you've got a certain income level, you live mm -hmm. in a certain 
neighborhood, you should be past these types of challenges. But research documents not only that those challenges are not necessarily driven by class, but by intersections of class and race, so that even Black upper class or uh, higher status workers are still in positions where they are likely to experience adverse healthcare in healthcare institutions. Some of that can also be driven by the types of workplace experiences that they have. So sociologists like David Williams, for example, have shown mm -hmm. that perceptions of racial discrimination can have concrete implications for adverse health in terms of hypertension, chronic stress, uh, insomnia, and other, other factors. What I know from my own research, and again, that of colleagues, is that manifestations of that in the workplace can take the form of being mistaken for lower status others, of open, explicit racial discrimination at work, of tokenism, like you mentioned, being treated as the person who's in the minority and being differently treated because of that minority status, uh, expectations to do certain types of emotional performance or emotion management or emotional labor in the workplace, mm -hmm. and the ways in which that gets structured for Black workers. All of those things can be factors that lead to these adverse health outcomes. And one of the interesting things that I learned from researching my book was also that observing those adverse health outcomes for Black healthcare workers can actually have an impact on them too. That can be a really critical part of the work that they do of trying to offset and challenge those particular health manifestations in ways that then can create workplace disadvantages and problems for those populations too. Yeah, for sure. It's really interesting stuff. And just like thinking, you know, like, um, actually, we're all people of color on this call right now. Um, <laughs> cheers to that. Um, but yeah, like, I wonder, have people like kind of parsed out, like, and have you seen any people speak about in your own work or some of the work that David and other scholars like that have done, where it's like, how much of like kind of, you know, there's all these different pathways that you talked about. Um, and I wonder how much of just like kind of like actually coming to the realization that you've done everything that you're supposed to do correctly and it's still just not enough and you're still going to have like the same experiences. And have people kind of directly link that to kind of some of these outcomes, like in addition to all these other, you know, big harms that are going on. Yeah, I mean, I think that can be sobering for many Black professionals to realize that you, as you put it, can do this work, you can do all the right things, you go to school, you do what, you know, we tell people they should do in society, but that does not necessarily mean any escape or reprieve from systemic racial inequality or discrimination, right? And I think that can be really frustrating at minimum for many people to have to realize in ways that then manifest for certain types of health consequences. For the healthcare workers that I studied, I think also the observations of how many patients of color were treated in healthcare systems and how patients of color, regardless of circumstances, background, social determinants of health and so forth, were often assumed to be people who were uh, seeking, just exhibiting drug-seeking behavior or people who were stereotyped or people who were assumed to have the worst motivations rather than simply people who needed healthcare. I think that presented another certain exposure to racial dynamics in society and the implications that it can have for healthcare when healthcare work, when black healthcare workers in particular themselves uh, have to come face to face with the ways that colleagues who might otherwise treat them very kindly and respectfully and nicely don't exhibit that same level of kindness or willingness to give the benefit of the doubt or grace to patient populations that remind these Black healthcare workers of themselves in many cases. Sure. And having to see 
that upfront stereotyping from people that they otherwise respect and trust can really mitigate against that workplace environment being a stable, comfortable one. You know, one thing that we've talked about a lot um, on the podcast is sort of like racism, you know, 13.0 or whatever, and how it feels. I mean, there's certainly overt racism in the workplace, right? But some of what you're talking about is like so much more subtle, right? It's not like, have you been denied unfairly for a promotion? It's sort of like, what way, in what ways do your colleagues talk about race that you sort of pick up on? And your comment about healthcare workers really reminds me of a medical student who I was working with, who was a, a black man. And he said that he was sort of just taught in his classes that like black people just collected diseases, right? And there was no sort of unpacking of race. And so even in training, it sort of starts. And so he was just really frustrated by the time I started working with him because he was like, we have to think about this more thoughtfully. And you can imagine when he actually enters clinical practice, you know, how much more intense that's going to sort of be like, but it's sort of so hard to pinpoint and talk about. Um, and I could go on and on, but like, when we think we'll get to this, but when we think about like intervention, right, or like diversity trainings, how to put a finger on those things and stop them is like incredibly challenging, right? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And other researchers have also noted that the issues that you're describing, like you pointed out, start before people begin their actual careers as MDs. My work focuses on, uh, or the book in question focused on uh, Black doctors, nurses, physician assistants, and technicians, all of whom have experiences that ha share some common grounds, but are also very dissimilar in some ways. But it's also very useful to think about the types of training that people go through to get to those points and what types of racial assumptions are embedded in Training, right? As you put it, this idea that Black people collect diseases or this discomfort or unwillingness to interrogate race as a socially constructed category and what that means for how healthcare workers even think about racial differences in health and medicine and illness and so forth. A lot of times, I think many Black healthcare workers come from environments where those questions either are not asked or if they are asked are not dealt with in a way that reflects the current consensus in a lot of sociological literature, particularly around the, again, social construction of race and what that means for racial outcomes. And I think that contributes to creating environments where Black healthcare workers are facing a number of certain challenges, not just dealing with uh, patients and colleagues' expectations of patients and the types of judgments that they see colleagues passing on patients, but the ways in which racial experiences become very subtly embedded into the everyday aspects of work life for Black healthcare workers and the difficult challenges that go along with trying to maintain one's autonomy and dignity in an environment that, while ostensibly colorblind, may still be perpetuating very specifically racialized ideas about Black disadvantage and inferiority, although in much more subtle ways than what we have seen in the past. Yeah, I, we, oh, go ahead, Daryl, go ahead. Yeah, I was really curious about, because you mentioned your, you know, your interviews with, with healthcare workers, and I can only imagine right now um, during this time where, you know, especially with the Delta variant and rising cases of COVID-19 and increased mortality and all that. So you have that. So we've heard a lot about fatigue and frustration from healthcare workers in general right now. So the added burden of, like you said, gender and social class and race and racism, uh, I can only imagine what people that, you know, you talk to just 
you know, a few years ago are going through right now. So if you were like, you know, you get that, that graduate school question, like if someone gave you a million dollars, um, what type of study do you think you would be able to craft right now? So, you know, drilling that down a little bit more. So what do you think the effect of the pandemic has been on people that you spoke to? Um, so the doctors, nurses, the PAs, the technicians, people who are really on the front lines right now, um, who are, again, carrying that additional burden. What do you think is, is happening for those folks? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So there are a couple of themes that come from the book that I think come to bear here. And I wrote about this actually in a piece for the Harvard Business Review about a year ago when the pandemic was just, that, well, that was a little more than a year ago when the pandemic was really mm -hmm. starting to kick off. But I was having similar thoughts and reflections about um, these issues early on in the pandemic. Uh, so I wrote about this about a year ago for Harvard Business Review because a lot of the themes that were coming up in my book, I thought, were really exacerbated by the current conditions now. And so there are two in particular that I think stand out. One has to do with some of the issues that I was just mentioning about how Black healthcare workers saw Black patients being treated. And remember, I collected all of my data um, between 2015 and 2018. So this is before any of us knew what COVID was or had any thoughts about this, no. you know, post-apocalyptic world we live in now with masks <laughs> and <laughs> all the other stuff, right? right and what right. I found even then was that some of the biggest challenges for Black healthcare workers, as I mentioned, had to do with working in these environments where they would treat, where one, they went into this work because they wanted, in many cases, specifically to care for patients that they knew to be underserved. They wanted to care for uh, patients of color, predominantly Black and Latino patients who often were uninsured or underinsured. And they wanted to do this because there was a real personal commitment, um, in many cases, having come from those environments or those backgrounds themselves. So I talked with doctors, for example, who would say, uh, you know, growing up, my only health care was the emergency room. And I know that that's not optimal, but this was how I grew up. And I saw the types of treatment that I got, that my parents got, that my grandparents got. And I want to offset that by providing more compassionate, respectful care to people for whom that is their only option or their first line of health care. And what would happen for many of these healthcare workers was that they would go into these environments and they would see Again, that patients that reminded them of themselves, of their family members, were still being subjected to disrespect and mistreatment from frequently white colleagues who assumed, you know, this person's just here because they're trying to get drugs, or this person is too lazy to be compliant, or this person's obviously a bad parent because they are here in the emergency room because they have a cough and they brought, you know, all three of their, their kids with them. What kind of mom would do something like that? And a lot of my respondents would talk about the frustrations of having consistently to defend specific patients and patient choices at large to their coworkers and saying, this person might be bringing their kids because they may not have childcare. There may not be another option. And if this person left their kids at home unattended, we'd also say they were a bad parent. Let's think about what types of choices they might have, right? So I think that that type of experience is probably only significantly worsened during the pandemic, particularly as we see that Black and Latino communities were disproportionately and continue to be disproportionately affected by the pandemic. I think that those types of assumptions that shape how those, those patient populations get care or the types of care that they get probably have only been exacerbated by the current circumstances of the pandemic where those communities are more likely to be hit hard by these illnesses without necessarily commensurate attention to the circumstances that shape why they're more likely to be hit hard by these illnesses. So that's one factor. The other factor that I think is probably very prevalent is that particularly among Black healthcare workers in public facilities where mm -hmm. the amount of public funding and support for these facilities mm -hmm. 
has significantly declined over the years. I found that many Black healthcare workers in, in those spaces uh, really were in a bit of a bind, so to speak. And they were in a bind because these healthcare facilities often touted their abilities to, again, reach these communities who often were underserved. They were the front line for many uh, patient care, patient populations who didn't have uh, consistent access to, to care. But these workers also noted that in many cases, the hospital administration did not do much to offset the fact that they were so under-resourced. And what many patient, what many providers told me, particularly Black women providers told me, was that they felt very exploited by a dynamic where they were expected to go in and give 110% and that they were willing to give 110% because they cared that much about the populations that they were serving. But there was also a sense that administrators exploited that sense of commitment and that sense of concern uh, without necessarily doing the work on their part to try to get adequate resources, to try to get more support, to try to fight for more funding. And I think, again, particularly as we have seen that COVID has just struck so many communities of color and that people of color who are uninsured or underinsured are more likely to not necessarily contract COVID, but certainly deal with the consequences of contracting the illness and having to go to these facilities that, again, are dealing with the fact that there are declining resources going towards them, I think has probably made that burden of feeling exploited, of feeling frustrated by the institutions where they work, mm -hmm. of doing the emotional labor of having to conceal that frustration and yeah. feeling disillusioned by the medical industry at large. I think that's probably very pronounced for many black healthcare workers today even much more so than it was when I was initially doing the interviews before mm -hmm. COVID was even a thing. Yeah. Yeah, those are great insights. I think it really becomes like this, this multi-level dilemma where you don't have, you have individuals who are trying to do this work, kind of like the title of our podcast, Sick Individual, Sick Population. So um, you've got individuals who are bearing the burden of caring for populations that have already been underserved, historically marginalized. And then there's no system support there. So addressing in public health, we always talk about five A's of access. So not just making sure people can have affordable care, but also making sure that care is actually accessible so people can, you know, get there when they have child care or there is a child care facility or that hours work for people's schedules. So all those are factors that I'm sure that, again, people on the front lines mentioned to you and that administrators, unfortunately, a lot of times people don't don't think about those things and, and collaborating with other types of systems, not just healthcare, but transportation, employment sector, et cetera. So um, really great insights. Thank you. Yeah, it, just, it reminds me of a story that I read, I think relatively early on in the pandemic, where there was a contrast between two hospitals. And both were in New York, I believe, in New York City. One was a private hospital that had been able to lobby for this infusion of funds, despite the fact that they were not treating a disproportionate number of coronavirus patients, but they had been able to just, this, you know, just get a great amount of additional money to provide care, which is certainly important. But the contrast was with, again, one of these publicly funded facilities that had been seeing declining resources based on a shrinking tax base for years, that was treating a growing number of COVID patients and was not getting any additional support or any help. And I remember reading that article and thinking about the respondents that I spoke to at facilities just like that and thinking this is exactly what they were talking about, about not having the equipment that they needed, not having the support that they needed, not having the resources that they needed, but still being expected to do this work of making sure that patients 
not only got the care that they needed, but challenging colleagues who would blame patients themselves right. for their own illnesses, right. for their own health care, and not be very sympathetic to the other factors that could contribute to the types of illnesses that they would confront. And it just really highlighted what a lot of respondents shared, again, even before the pandemic worsened all of these uh, considerations and made them that much more pronounced. Yeah. yeah. So kind of I think like real quick, I think it's kind of interesting and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, right? So all this is kind of bumping up against like, you know, what people want to call the second pandemic or the alternative pandemic, which is just racism. It's not a pandemic, it's our, in our country, right? So there, despite what the name is, um, there is kind of like a moment where I think like uh, institutions are really having to kind of reckon what racial inequities like built into their systems, right? Even like the most like kind of like colorblind loving kind of like racially obtuse places looking at you academia have really had to like kind of sit down and at least kind of talk about these things and think about them. And so like, as like kind of like the pandemic is kind of like ripping through black and brown communities and kind of like exasperating all these harms that you just talked about, have there been like, what does it look like in these institutions? Are they doing any of that kind of work, right? Or is the medical field just like, whatever, we're not thinking about them. We've never been thinking about it. Keep doing what we're doing, right? Like, what does that look like with both of these things coming together at the same time? Yeah, that's also such an interesting question. And I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that also, because as we all know, it was during the pandemic and after George Floyd was killed that we started to see a lot of exposés around right so many industries, right? I mean, pretty much all of them, journalism, government, politics, academia, media, right? Story after story about how these institutions and these organizations and these industries were so toxic and systemically disadvantaging uh, racial groups, people of color, black people specifically, uh, women of all races, and how this was a chronic problem that was occurring across so many industries. And I think it's interesting that at the same time that you saw these exposés and these accounts happening, uh, you start to see also many companies being more front and center and forthright in their public statements around uh, racism and racial inequality, right? You start to see a bunch of companies blacking out squares on Instagram and tweeting things like we stand against systemic racism and we're not right. going to tolerate it. It's a bad thing. Right. That's fantastic. It's good to have those statements. It's good to say those things. But we also know as researchers that statements only get you so far. And what statements don't get you is action or change unless those statements are coupled with specific actions or, or changes. And I think that that's still the remaining question around a lot of industries is to see which industries and which organizations specifically are intentional and deliberate about backing up those statements with actual action, particularly since many of those organizations with explicit statements now about systemic racism or organizations where if you look at their top ranks of leadership, don't have many, if any, people of color or many black people in particular, right? So there's a bit of a disconnect between what you are saying and what is actualized in your actual practices. And just, you know, to be clear, it's easy, I think, to have the counterpoint and say, you know, well, they don't have any people of color at their top leadership ranks, but we shouldn't necessarily assume that that's due to racial processes. It may be that there aren't people who are qualified or maybe there aren't people who applied. That's usually pretty inaccurate <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because there are uh, people of color in 
every industry and the data show us that when people of color and black people specifically are underrepresented at these leadership positions, it's usually not because they didn't apply. It's usually not because they don't have the skills, usually not because they don't have the talents. It's usually because there are a myriad of internal processes that create additional disadvantages and barriers for black workers to get to the top levels of these organizations and these industries. Now, the good part about this is that there's also research that documents what organizations can do differently to try to address those barriers. Right. These aren't really, this, it's not this murky mystery where, you know, we just don't know what can be done differently. And, you know, cause we don't know, we just keep doing the same things that we've been doing. That's also inaccurate, right? There's research that does document what organizations can do to try to improve the numbers of diversity or the numbers of people of color and women of all races at their top ranks. So what I think is important to keep an eye on over the next, I'd say year or two, is to look at what actual concrete steps organizations are making. Are they drawing from the research that does document, uh, here are the ways to improve diversity at your top ranks. You can institute mentoring programs for all groups. You can institute skills training. You can institute cross training so that people have access to different levels of the organization. Uh, you can change your recruitment processes so that you can actually attract more people of color. Are organizations doing those things? Or are they just bringing in a diversity consultant who does a seminar and then move along? Because that doesn't work. And we know that doesn't work because there's a lot of data to document <laughs> the fact that that doesn't work. Not least of which the fact is the fact that many organizations have been doing that and they have not yielded results. So all that is just to say that I think it's at this point kind of in a, a murky area because I think that the statements of support are useful. And I think that that's a good start. If that's the start and the finish, then I don't think that that's going to do much. But if that's the start and it's a beginning step towards actually backing up these statements with action, then that's something that I think we could be a little bit more cautiously optimistic about. Yeah. You know, one thing I was thinking about when all of this was sort of unfolding last year, I had a friend who went, who pivoted from tech to like DEI in tech. Like he's not trained in this, but because he was, a man of color, like he sort of, he went on 70 interviews for like this DEI positions. And I was really thinking about like, I, I might put my foot in my mouth, but there's this sort of like nonprofit industrial complex, right, that exists. And I wonder if there's this like DEI industrial that is sort of emerging too. Like, it's sort of like, they're all over the place, charging all this money, which is like, mm -hmm. go get your coins, that's great. But what are we actually doing I even wonder, like, if we did a study among those, like, DEI consultants and trainers, like, how much burden they're also carrying um, from having to go into these places that aren't really intentional about changing, but sort of, like, check things off the box. Um, but I wonder, do you, like, I, if you can speak to, is there any sort of company or industry or, like, case study who was sort of being a little intentional and doing it well, or would you even not even venture to, like, say something you know, out there, but I'm just wondering. You know, yeah, so I will say this from my own research, I have not encountered or interacted with people who would say, you know, yeah, my hospital or my facility has got, like, they're doing this right. And they've, they've mm. got this, they've got this under control. That's not to say that those places are not out there, mm. right? But from my own research, I didn't speak with anybody who, who felt that way. But what I do think it is useful to point out is that we talk about things that can work. The reason why we know these things can work is because there are meta-analyses where people have done studies where they've documented that uh, organizations that implement, for example, 
uh, certain procedures when it comes to hiring, have been able to improve the numbers of people of color and women of all races that they brought into an organization by X percent over this amount of time, right? So while we may not be able to, or I should say I, while I may not be able to point to a specific industry or organization or a case study that serves as a model for how to do this in and of itself, I think that the fact that there is documented research that does show that certain procedures and certain policies do move the needle and do yield changes is really encouraging and really important. Because then if we know that those procedures are out there and we know that they work and we know that the data suggests they do work, then the question becomes, is it that organizations simply do not know about the steps and the strategies that work or that they are unwilling to put them into practice. Because if you know that these steps, that these steps and these strategies work, it's hard to then excuse yeah. not doing them, right? So I think then, like I said, that once we know that, if we know that these policies, if we know there are certain policies that work and that there are certain initiatives that can yield results, the next step I think becomes making sure that organizations are aware of them. And I think that's where you really get insights into what, whether and how people are really interested in making changes. Because if they have access to the information that is peer reviewed and data driven that shows that certain initiatives will make changes, that tells you something if an organization is then unwilling to enact those practices. And I think that tells you a lot more than what organizations are willing to put on social media or say publicly. Mm -hmm. Those are really fascinating insights. I'm, I'm kind of curious about, especially, um, in your new role as uh, as vice dean and thinking about faculty development, um, any I mean I guess you can only you know think about you know what's in your you know purview, but any tips or you know things that you're thinking about doing um, in in your own backyard that you think that other industry leaders should be considering to implement at their organizations. Yeah, that's a great question, too. I mean, a lot of the things that I'd like to put into practice are <laughs> perhaps unsurprisingly things that draw from this, this research, right? So things mm -hmm. that relate to the work that I've done myself or the studies that I've read from colleagues about ways to create more uh, equitable and inclusive environments for faculty of color. So I have some initiatives that are underway now, although they, well, not underway, I have some initiatives that are um, kind of going through the process of getting approval so that I can actually put them into, into practice. But a couple of the things that I think it is safe to say are actually underway have to do with some of the attempts to have more explicit open discussions with people in uh, leadership positions in arts and sciences about issues that may be uh, of interest to faculty of color. So by way of example, I'll be leading a workshop for new department chairs about re retaining faculty of color. Uh, that will include uh, Dean Hu, the Dean of Arts and Sciences, uh, and some other department chairs at WashU. And that will talk specifically about some of the challenges that can come up with recruiting, excuse me, recruiting and retaining faculty of color and how to make sure that department chairs are attuned to the specific uh, opportunities and, and needs that are present for that population. Another workshop for mid-career faculty will take place at the end of the academic school year. And that focuses on uh, positioning yourself for academic leadership. One of the things that we know from research is that for faculty of color, a key factor in making sure that people want to stay at an institution has to do with making sure that they are aware of the opportunities that can be there for them to grow and develop. And that faculty of color can often easily be passed over for leadership positions or not put into the queue for leadership positions for a variety of reasons. So one of the 
things that I wanted to do was to address that specifically and talk about how faculty of color can be mindful of where opportunities lie and ways to position themselves to uh, be attuned to and observant of the uh, doors that may be open for leadership roles in academia uh, at large, not even just at WashU, but in academia at large. So those are a couple of the workshops that have already been approved that I'll be putting forth as part of my series workshop series for a new faculty, new department chairs, and uh, mid-career faculty. But there are other initiatives as well that I want to put together that have to do with these questions of making sure that people have access to mentors, making sure that people uh, understand specific university policies, so that things are done by rules that apply to everybody, and not just because you have a personal relationship with the chair, or you know someone who knows someone, or you have inside information. Because again, we know that a lot of times that is how faculty of color get left out of important channels of information, start feeling frustrated, and start wanting to think about leaving. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's a really neat. I mean, you're a good. Um, you, you'd be like a, a poster child for how you're connecting your research <laughs> to your to your service. So that's that's really outstanding. Did you? Thank did you, you. Yeah, it's kind of funny to to be in that position, right? Where the stuff that I read actually has uh, practical applications for <laughs> right <laughs> my job. Right, Daryl, did you hear those workshops you're about to be signed up for? <laughs> I, I did. I did. I, I'm looking go. forward to it. <laughs> There you go. That's funny. All right. I guess to like shift gear. Yeah. We are all our questions, our conversations just flow and all our questions are off, but it's great. Um, so like to kind of shift gears just a little bit, right? Um, like let's talk about um like all the tremendous work that you do as like a public uh, publicly engaged scholar. Uh, right, you've written for kind of mainstream outlets like Slate, The Atlantic, Fox, uh, like you said earlier, Harvard Business Review, kind of lots of contributions there. And so as like kind of like an early career scholar who, um, you know, I don't know what it's like in other disciplines, but sociology um, is a little mixed on how much of that kind of thing you should be doing, right? Like, could you give us like just a little bit of like insight into your experiences doing that, how you've been capable? able to kind of like do it so successfully and also how you've been able to kind of reconcile it with like kind of this um older school i kind of think uh, kind of like guard in our discipline that is just like don't do any of that kind of stuff yeah yeah that's that's another great question well i will say when i started really writing more consistently for public outlets that actually coincided with uh coming here to washu which was also when I got the promotion to full professor, which I don't think is a, a coincidence or an accident. I'm not sure that I would have either spent as much time or done so done this kind of work so publicly as a brand new assistant professor. And the reason for that, I think is pretty, pretty self-evident. I think that as an assistant professor, the advice that I often give assistant professors is that if you want to do that kind of work, I would not say to shy away from it, but I would really emphasize the things that are going to count for a promotion to associate professor, which in most departments are still going to be research, teaching, and service. And I would not advise any assistant professor to put themselves or find themselves in a position where they do become so focused on public work and public scholarship and outreach that the research, teaching, and service uh, suffers or is compromised in any way. That's not to say don't do any of that, right? I mean, there, I think that there are ways to do some of that, that public work, but I, again, just always emphasize and stress that the things that get you tenure should certainly be your, your priority. 
Um, so in my own experience, that was certainly the, the case that I was uh, obsessively <laughs> focused on uh, research, teaching and scholarship and getting tenure up until I got it. And then I became kind of obsessively focused on getting promoted to, to full until, until that happened. But I do think that in sociology in particular, there is room to think about ways to do both things strategically and ways to have a successful academic career, but also to think about the implications of your work for uh, mainstream outlets and mainstream audiences. And I think in sociology, that's actually really important for us to be able to do because so much of our work has such significance and relevance for issues and problems and challenges that are happening in the world, right? So, so sociology is the study of groups in society. Our discipline is so broad and spans so many topics that it's hard to find any issue or challenge that sociology and sociologists cannot lend relevant insights to, whether we're talking about climate change or community behavior or uh, the rise of white supremacy or uh, racial issues at work. All these are things that sociologists are thinking about and talking about and doing really valuable research that has important implications for. So I think it is incumbent upon us in some degree not just to share the results of our research and to talk in like-minded communities with other, with other sociologists. I think it's also really important for us to think about and be conversant with other mainstream audiences who can benefit from the type of work that we are doing and how our work has implications for understanding why some people won't wear masks and why and how that became politicized and what people can do to encourage communities to follow procedures that will potentially slow the spread of or stop this potentially fatal disease that's working its way through our society and through the, the global society as well, right? Um, so all that is to say that I think that there's a way to do that judiciously and carefully, uh, particularly when you're an untenured assistant professor, but that I think that balancing those is really important for us as sociologists because it is so relevant to the work that we do and because our work is so, so important and has such critical implications for so many aspects of society that it's really relevant and necessary for us, I think, to be publicly engaged in that way. Yeah, that's a thoughtful answer. And it's such a hard tension I feel like you're speaking to me because I want to do all of the forward public facing stuff, but I don't know if that's going to get me tenure. So uh, it's hard to grapple with, but I do think that like pushing the edge a little bit, right? But like keeping the goal in mind is, is pretty smart. Um, well, thank you for those insights. Um, we could spend hours talking to you, but we know that duty calls for you and we're all trying to relish in the final few days that we have before, you know, our quarters and semesters get started. So we really appreciate you, um, Dr. Wingfield, for joining us and sharing all your insights today. Sure, I'm happy to do it. Thank you for having me. That is fun. Well, thanks so much. And we really appreciate our listeners for tuning into this episode. And we want to remind everyone that our annual meeting themed appropriately, Racism, Power and Justice, Achieving Population Health Equity is coming up October 18th through 19th in person at the Baltimore Renaissance Harbor Place Hotel. So for more information, you can find it on the IAPHS website. So thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.